Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. So it has been quite a week. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and we're not going to talk about the weather this week, right? <laughs> That's not our topic. It's been quite a week. We've gone from really, really, really highs to some kind of lows that yeah. we're going to get through. So um, so let me, can I just start by saying that it started on a high when we attended the MCRC, Montgomery County Roadrunners Club annual banquet. And we talked about this last week, but you were nominated for Masters Female Runner of the Year. And I am so proud and excited to announce that you won that award. So congratulations after seven years of being nominated. And I told you the only downside now is you can't be nominated again and you can't win again. So your streak has ended, but so well-deserved and um, you've deserved it every year you've been nominated, but super well-deserved. And I was so happy to, to see, even though I knew ahead of time but and couldn't tell you, but super proud of you. Thank you. It was really exciting for me, and I'm really um, thrilled to follow in your footsteps. Um, you won it, I think it was four years ago. It was for 2015, so yeah. we're three years apart. You're yeah. two, you won it for 2018, okay. right? And um, yeah, I'm really just grateful. And um, like I said last week on the podcast, to even be considered and be a thought at my age and be able to receive the award on Sunday was so meaningful and I was really excited. And um, unfortunately, I've had a really um, tough go this week. Um, last Friday, I was doing a training run, just a real easy uh, Friday morning run with my running partner, Felix. And we were in mile two of our run and I felt a pop in the back of my knee, which is not normal. I've never had knee problems, but it well, was- we should back up and say, you know, you even talked about this, that you had some pain on the side of your knee that you've been right, seeing Rachel yeah, Miller. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, I felt a pop in the back of my knee. I've never had anything go on in the back of my knee before. So we immediately stopped and walked home. And my first thought, because we're coaches and we kind of see everything, my first thought was I, I tore my meniscus. Because I knew the description of what it had felt like from other runners, and I just had it in my head. But it was such a dramatic pop. It did not hurt, but my knee sort of buckled. And the buckling combined with the sound or the feeling of the pop led me to believe that there was something really wrong and that I just started walking. We walked home. And as soon as the orthopedist opened, I called uh, an orthopedist I know, and they were able to squeeze me in that day, Friday. And I met with a joint doctor who really didn't do knees, but it didn't matter. He took a look at me and he said, I don't see anything. And they did an x-ray. He said, I don't see anything, but because your knee buckled, I'll order an MRI. And so I didn't run last weekend and I was concerned, but I wasn't panicked. I, I cross-trained and uh, used the elliptical. We made friends and the bike and just kind of tried to stay chill because there was nothing I could do over the weekend. And did and it hurt your knee to to do that? Not at all. And my knee actually wasn't, after the first day, my knee felt wonky, but then I felt fine. I was walking fine. I was hopeful that it was just a freak thing. And backing up over the past couple of weeks, I noticed my right glute wasn't firing well. So I was working on that a lot, um, getting it to fire a little better. It was not something that I noticed so much when I ran, but more when I was doing strength training, I was noticing a weakness on that side and I wanted to take care of that. And I also noticed there was like a little bit of a dull um, sort of ache on the right side of my knee after longer runs. And so that's why I was working on my glute, knowing it was all related. So I was on it. Um, but the back of my knee and that happening was nothing I ever expected. And I was calm over the weekend and just figured I'll wait and see. And I was able to fortunately get an MRI Monday. And I was able to meet with an ortho on Tuesday morning. And he gave me the news that I have a complex tear of the posterior horn of my lateral meniscus with a small flap-like component flipped fragment extending off of the posterior horn that is six millimeters. And I'm reading You didn't this. memorize this. No, <laughs> I'm reading this from my report. That's a mouthful. Because I think it's important to note that this all of us have some tears in our knees at this point. It's very common to be walking around with a torn meniscus, but my tear is, of course, special because why wouldn't it be? <laughs> and um, my, my tear is one that um, 
I needed to explore some options. And of course, I wasn't going to run on it until I knew exactly what was going on. So I've met over the past couple of days with a couple of orthopedists. I've sought opinions from a lot of different people, people who have had meniscus surgery, people who have waited it out. And this morning I met with an orthopedist who was wonderful, and they all are. They've all been so wonderful. And he really explained to me the results of my MRI indicate that the tear that I have is one that would never improve from physical therapy and core strength because of the nature of it. It's it's frayed in such a way that I have some particles in my knee that would move around. And as a result, I need to I need to get this thing trimmed a little bit. I'm going to have a partial it's it's just basically I'm not having a repair like a younger person because I'm old and it's degenerated tissue. And, and a lot we should of us- say that we what we've learned, and I didn't know much mm-hmm. before about the meniscus, but what we learned is that it doesn't have blood flow, so it doesn't recover. So it's not like your tear is going to repair in its Correct. own. And it's not like sewing it up or stitching it up is going to repair it. No. Um, you really just have to trim it away. And there is some debate as to whether you skip the surgery and you just do physical therapy yes. and just try to rehab the muscles around your knee so that you're stable? Or do you go in and you have the surgery, get it trimmed out and maybe have possibly some risk of having arthritis down the, down the road. Um, so there are are risks and benefits of either, but there's some kind of debate as to whether you wait it out and do the physical therapy or you go ahead and do the surgery. And that's been interesting for you to kind of explore. Yes. And so, um, I wouldn't have the whole thing trimmed out or anything. It would just be a partial, a little bit taken off. Um, and that's important because I still have cart I would still have cartilage. But what the risk of a surgery is, it's arthroscopic, is that for anyone who's experienced this, they know it it changes sort of the pattern of your knees. So you need to sort of re you have to of course go through rehab and make sure that when you resume running again that your your muscles are strong enough to protect your knee in its new form. So that's why surgery is scary. Um, until now I thought my knees were great and um Apparently, my right knee had had something going on, and I had no idea. And and the theory is also when I spoke to the ortho, I also was talking to Eric Giro, the trainer who was on our podcast, and Rachel Miller, our physical therapist, about this. My right glute was probably shutting down to protect my body. This probably has been going on um, for quite some time, and I had no idea. I've been running great, and. Um, it just happened. And there's a couple of, of silver linings to this. And the first is that I am surrounded by such supportive people and experts. I'm going to cry. Don't cry. <laughs> I just want to interject and say I've never seen – well, I, this doesn't surprise me about you. But that as soon as this came down, you got into action. You you set out for your PR in recovery. And we talked about this before. But you are such a model of how to handle adversity because you didn't go hide under a rock. You didn't get down on yourself. You didn't, um, you know, you didn't get discouraged. You thought, what can I do about this? And you, like you said, you sought out every expert that we have in our circle of friends and professionals. And you talk to other runners that have had this happen. And, you know, it's, you're doing, you're, you're getting stuff done. And yeah. it's, I told you today when I saw you for the first time in a couple of days that I can't believe how much you've done <laughs> in the past few days since I last saw you. You've been to Prime Fitness to already work on some prehab. You've talked to several uh, orthopedists. You've talked to physical therapists. You've talked to lots of runners about their experiences. So you're getting stuff done, which is something that I think um, is so indicative of your your positive can do what <laughs> do you. this is the situation what do i need to do yeah. let's get it done and that to me is something i think that everyone can look up to not only as runner of the year <laughs> but great attitude and really positive outlook and handling stuff in the best way that you can um i think that you're a great example of that too. i appreciate that i really do um i think when someone gets injured the first thing you want at least for me I think, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Yeah. And I'm comforted by the fact that this is just degenerative. There was no training error. There was no, I did too much too soon. And I think that's important because sometimes shit happens. Right. And uh, I think that's important. We, you know, we, you know that yeah. happens with our runners sometimes where we train them and we do everything right and they're doing everything right. Yeah. And an injury happens. And you know, we kick ourselves, they kick themselves. What could I have done differently? And everyone has a different injury threshold. And even if you have a high injury threshold, something can happen and you can do everything right. 
and it, it can still happen. And it's not that it happened. It's how you deal with it and move forward and the attitude that you have. And that's like I said, you're, you're an example of that as well as everything else that you've done. So um, I appreciate it. And I, I just, um, before I had my moment, I just want to thank all of the people that have chimed in who I reached out to. I spent probably an hour yesterday talking to Tia Devan, who has had some meniscus injuries. I've spoken to Lee Firestone. I've spoken to Rachel. I mean, there's just so many wonderful people in our lives who are great resources. And I'm just so grateful for their input. And the physician today made my decision really simple and he just broke it down for me. And he explained, I cannot run on this tear, even with rehab, because the tear itself is unique and won't change. And I appreciated that, made the decision very easy. And so what I'm going to do is schedule the surgery, um, probably if I can do it in late April. And that's because I am also still going to go to Boston. I am, of course, not going to run the marathon. That would be so stupid. Um, And I am going to go and support all of our runners and support you and support our friends and have a great weekend. I have never spectated the Boston Marathon. I'm a huge sports fan. I would love to go and spectate. I'm going to have the best seat in the house. I will make sure I'm out there early. And I'm super excited to still share the weekend. And I'm feeling okay. I can walk just fine. I'm not in any pain. I just cannot run on this delicate, special knee. Yeah. And I think it would just be really a shame for me to miss out on one of my absolute favorite weekends of the year. And I know at times it will be hard, but I know that for me, it will be a, a great memory regardless. And I'm and for us to have you there, for me in particular, so, yeah. I can't speak for anybody else, but I could, I think I can by saying that a Boston, and I've had to unfortunately go through a Boston without you before. <laughs> Uh, during a much more serious, I would say, injury that took you out for a lot longer. So I I don't have any desire to repeat that. So selfishly, I think your presence there uh, will be really, really important to me and to all of our other runners in our running community because it's not the same when you're not there. So you really are (laughs) a thread that keeps us all together. So um, so it would be – very sad if you weren't there. <laughs> and I selfishly am glad you are still going, but um, but obviously just as crushed that you are that you won't be running it this year, but you'll be there and you'll be the best spectator. I You're going to get a PR <laughs> and spectating this year I and surfing and, and being out there for us and for us to see you out there is going to be really, really meaningful. So I, I think it's really great that you're still going. I, I told you this before and I, I really don't know if I was in the same position, if I would be able to make myself go and see the runners running when and knowing when I wasn't. And I, maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. I but, think you would. But I think that's, <laughs> I, I think I would dig myself in a hole and bury myself and 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 feel pity for myself. So I, I really admire uh, how you're handling it and the fact that you're going to Boston, I'm super appreciative of. So um, this happens though, and this happens to lots of runners and there may be runners out there who are listening to this that are struggling with maybe not being able to run this year, um, whatever marathon they're training for. And I think eyes on the prize, and this has happened to you before this in 2015, right? It was 2015. Yeah, it was 2014 to 15, like end of 2014. I, I, um, had an insertional Achilles tear interestingly on the same side. And I healed from that. It took a long time, no surgery or anything, but, um, I think I just happened to have some, some weakness on my right side and I work hard to keep it strong, but I think this is just uh, a product of that. And but you came back from that and that's what, you know, like that was one little blip. It was gone and you came back strong and you hit PRs and you run strong and healthy since. So it was a little blip and it's a crummy blip and it's crummy timing because it takes you out of Boston, but you'll be back. And I'll be back. And I think it's really important. There's a couple of things when I get injured that happen to me. And I don't know if this happens to other people out there who have injuries, but one is I am a person who happens to love running. I am not just a runner. And I think when you get injured, it's real easy to sometimes feel just something about yourself or your identity is missing because you're not physically running. And the fact is that you're a person who enjoys running just because you're injured. That doesn't you're still change a that. You're, you're just still an injured runner. runner. Right. And, you know, just off the roads for a little while. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing, especially for people who, if, if there's anyone out there that 
at all tends to put value in themselves and their race or their race times, please don't. Because when you get injured, that's extra devastating. So I I know for me, when things like this happen, and first of all, the other thing is, and this sounds counterintuitive, and I'm not being fake at all when I say this, it's the honest to God truth. When I have a running injury, it is a very, very huge reminder of how fortunate I am to have my health. I mean, how lucky am I that my biggest health problem right now, knock on wood, is I have a torn meniscus. That's fixable. And you've got a great network of people who are going to help you get that fixed and back on the roads right. I'm so so lucky. There's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of people I know that you know, are suffering in big ways. And I'm not stupid. I recognize that this is very minimal in the scheme of things. And I, but it's okay to be sad about it too. It's really okay to let yourself be sad and be angry or whatever (laughs) you need to for a little bit. But I do agree that, you know, there's, and I told you this before, there's nothing that you've done or didn't do that contributed to this. It was just one of those things that happened. You're so, you're such a smart runner. You train super smart. You recover really smart. And you, as soon as you, felt a little something going on with your knee a few weeks ago, you started doing something about it. You went to physical therapy. You started working on strength. You started working on your right side, your right glute, because you knew that's where the, the source. You didn't ignore it. You didn't ignore it and keep running. So you've done everything you can. And it's just, it's something that was probably, you know, degenerating for a long period of time that you just don't know about. And like you said, most of us over 40, if we had an MRI of our knees, we'd probably see they're in worse shape than we, than we anticipated. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but maybe that, I should go get an MRI of my knees now. But that is why strength training is so important. So important. Because if you have strength surrounding those knees, generally speaking, um, th- th- that will absolutely compensate with any uh, tissue that's in there or cartilage that is minimized um, as a result of activity, whether it's running or some other sport. It just happens. Um, and, you know, that leads me to we we – have a great episode this this week. We are so excited that we were able to welcome Matt Fitzgerald, a prolific author, to our podcast. And we just talked with him. And one of the things he said during our recording, he said, don't let small problems become big problems. And denial is something that a lot of people have. <laughs> just and, a and river. Not, <laughs> not just a river. Denial, denial. And I'm, I think with injury in particular, especially as we get older or and not even age, but the longer you've been running. Because we talked last week with Brenda Hodge, right. who's an older runner. She's a master's runner, but she hasn't – she took a long hiatus. Right. She's got so, a lot of running yeah. years left in her. Yeah. So I think it's just super important to – to really pay attention to those little problems because a week or two off from running could save an entire season. Now that that wouldn't have happened in my case, but, but there are many cases where that could happen. And a lot of people are just proud to listen to, or just afraid of missing that one day of training or or that one race. So here's an example. I, I, I probably could have run Boston because I'm not in pain. Yeah. But you know what? I would have finished this race and then I probably would have had even more of this um cartilage taken out. Yeah. So or more tears yeah. or more damage done. Yeah. And that's not, yeah. No. So I I am over the top sometimes, but look, I want to run for as long as I can. I feel really lucky to have this passion and this love for the sport and I want to keep going. I want to be on that senior Olympics team. Right. Big picture. (laughs) You got to look long-term and that's even now that's that same. Don't let something, this is relatively small. Yep. So we don't want to let this something become something big that takes out your career and it's not going to. You've got great doctors. You've had heard from people who've had this surgery and have turned around and come back to running just as fast, if not faster than before. So I know you will. It's just a hard time right now. Yeah. This, is the, this is like the, the depths of it. You're in just the beginning and just grappling with what's going on and figuring out what to do. So I think once you have a plan and you're moving forward, it's one step in front of the other, just like anything else. Yeah. So, so yeah. if anyone out there is listening who has had um, the surgery and has any input, feel free to email us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com. I'd love to hear about your experience or any advice or tips you have. We get a lot of great emails from our, we call them our pen pals that listen yes. to the podcast and we really enjoy we meeting people from all over the country and the world yeah. who've listened and email us with with their, with their feedback, their stories, their take on stuff that we've talked about. And we are super uh, fortunate to have Matt Fitzgerald on today. And Matt just released a new book called Life is a Marathon. And I think that's really appropriate <laughs> for kind of everything that's going on right now. And it's really, I had mentioned to Matt that 
and both of us kind of were skeptical. We thought, well, Matt always writes these really great in-depth research books looking at uh, the the mental aspect of running or nutrition or training. And we've really liked those books. He's written other books too, but those are the books that we've really enjoyed. We used uh, the book Diet Cults as our book for the Read Farther and Faster book club this year. And we really like these evidence-based books that give us information on our training and our nutrition and our mental strategies. And this book is a memoir and uh, about Matt and his wife who struggles with uh, bipolar disorder. It was a very candid book and parallels uh, his life and experiences, their life and experiences together and through her mental um, challenges or mental, dis- I guess it's mental, what do you want to- <laughs> mental, <laughs> health mental, mental health challenges, exactly. Mm-hmm. And his uh, cross-country adventures in running eight marathons in eight weeks. And he runs uh, the Reston Marathon, which is right near us. So it was neat to read about a local marathon. He runs Boston with his high school friend, which is similar to what you've done with your high school friends. Hey, so, Mandy. Yeah. So it's, it was really, it, it, the book just uh, spoke to us and really we related to it. And it was just a really um, touching and candid look at what running a marathon and what training a marathon, training for a marathon does for us in life. It helps us become our best, you, you become your best person and really gives you a lot of the strategies and skills that you need in life to deal with all sorts of challenges. So I stayed up late every night reading the book. Um, I couldn't put it down and I would encourage, we would both encourage anybody who's, uh, who likes Matt Fitzgerald's writing and his, has, has read his other books to grab this book quickly. It was just released on Tuesday and, uh, and read it. It's really a, a great book and, and reminds us all, I think, why we do this. Yeah. Why do we do this? And why do we love it so much? And like you mm-hmm. said, you're a runner who loves to run. And that's mm-hmm. both of us. We, we actually enjoy this. We don't, I mean, maybe we don't enjoy every single run and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. People always ask, you know, when does it, when does it become easy? It well, it's never it. easy, but mm-hmm. it's something that has brought us a lot of um, satisfaction in our lives. And reading this book, I think really puts that into, really does a good job of explaining why, why, why we do this. Absolutely. So um, we're going to toss it over to Matt now. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. And Lisa, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great week. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. We are so excited to welcome Matt Fitzgerald to our podcast today. Matt is an award-winning endurance sports journalist and best-selling author of more than 20 books on running, triathlon, fitness, nutrition, and weight loss. Matt's books include Brain Training for Runners, Racing Weight, Diet Cults, which was the subject of our Read Farther and Faster book club, and his most recent memoir, Life is a Marathon. Matt's byline appears regularly in national publications, including Men's Journal, Outside Magazine, and Women's Running. In addition to being a prolific author, Matt is also an experienced running and triathlon coach and is also a certified sports nutritionist. We are so thrilled to welcome Matt to our podcast. Welcome to the podcast today, Matt Matt Fitzgerald. We are so excited to have you on today. We are big fans of all of your books. We are um, just mentioned that we uh, read your book, Diet Cults, for our last Read Farther and Faster book club, and it was very well received. We had a dietitian come in and facilitate the discussion with us. So we are huge fans of all of your books and really appreciate your research and thoughtfulness and have adhered to many of your uh, philosophies and principles in, in our own training. Um, so, And we were delighted to see uh, your new book, which is Life is a Marathon, come out, which was just released uh, on, what was it, just two days ago, right, on Tuesday? That's right. Yeah, just released on Tuesday, and you were kind enough to send us advanced copies. And as I had mentioned to you, I, I, was, I was a little skeptical. I, you know, we're such big fans of your books that are research-based and delve really deeply into uh, the psychology of running and nutrition and training that I thought, well, you know, a memoir, is this going to be, is this going to be captivating? Are we going to like it? And I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I couldn't put it down. Um, you're responsible for my lack of sleep the last week or so, <laughs> because I stayed up late reading it. And we both really, really enjoyed your book. I think it spoke to both of us as, as runners and um, why we run. So it was really a, a captivating 
captivating book and, and candid and honest. And uh, we could relate to lots of parts of it. We live right near Reston, Virginia. So your experience at the Runners Marathon of Reston was, we, we could picture that. And um, having been to Boston, both of us several times, um, appreciated your Boston stories. So we could relate to it on many levels. And, um, I, you know, as I was reading it, I, I thought, not just runners, but really it's, it's, it's anybody who's, you know, going through anything in life and trying to make sense of things and trying to um, find themselves. It was a really, really great book. So tell us what, why did you decide to deviate from your, from your typical research-based books and write a memoir? Yeah. So, you know, anytime I, I write a book, it's because I have, I feel an urgent need to communicate a certain message. So, even though this was a different kind of book, it was no different in that regard. You know, I just, I wasn't going to be able to rest uh, until and unless I told this story and, and shared this message. And also I, I, I do really enjoy narrative writing. Uh, I've done a fair amount of that, though not previously about myself. Um, my, my book, Iron War, is, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a story, true, true story about, uh, you know, the, a legendary race in the sport of triathlon. My How Bad Do You Want It book, uh, a lot of storytelling in there. Diet Cult, a lot of storytelling in there. So it's something I enjoy. Um, you know, um, and also, you know, this one does have a message. So even though, yes, it's about my life to a large extent, it, it is also in a different sort of way intended to serve other runners, uh, you know, made more of an inspirational than educational way in this case. Definitely. We, we definitely found that when we read it. And we wanted to know, what were your most memorable experiences while writing the book? Oh, man. I mean, that is a tough question to answer because, um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with it yet, the, the, the book has two threads. It, it really focuses a lot about uh, on my journey as a runner and uh, my journey in my marriage to um, a wonderful woman named Nataki. Um, and then the other thread is a cross-country trip that Nataki and I took together in 2017, uh, the ostensible purpose of which was for me to um, explore the magic of the marathon. Um, and I ran eight marathons in eight weeks all across the country during that period. And it was just, quite honestly, it was the best eight weeks of my life. I, it was just one incredible experience after another um, you know, just, you know, to toss out one sort of at random, I had a chance to run the Boston Marathon with my high school best friend and old running buddy, a guy named Mike, um, who was, um, he, he, you know, he was, he was my best friend, but we hadn't run together in, uh, I think, 16 years. And, you know, we hadn't raced together since high school, since, you know, 1988. <laughs> and um, he wanted to run under three hours there. And I was in the middle of my eight-week thing, and I had a bulky Achilles, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it with them. Anyway, we ran every step of that marathon together, and it was just an incredibly powerful uh, bonding experience and just nostalgic in, like, a more poignant way than just about anything I've experienced. Matt, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that as, as one of your more memorable experiences because when I read that part of the book about you running Boston with – a high school friend, I actually had that same experience myself. I uh -huh. um, reconnected with a dear friend from high school and we ran a large part of Boston together in 2014. And it, it was just such a, a fantastic experience for all the reasons you mentioned in your book. And it really was just so meaningful to reconnect with someone on such a deep level and then run a marathon with them and share that memory. So I really connected to that when you talked about that in your book. So it was a great story. Um, yeah, as I, as I say in the book, there's, there's almost no better way to say I love you to a, a friend who is also a runner than to, to run Boston with, with that person. You're so right. That's there's, funny. I, I was open to that page right now as you were talking. Yes. <laughs> you're so uh -huh. running that out today. I mean, because really you're experiencing a, a couple hours of highs, high highs and low lows all together. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we wanted to also talk about a few other books of yours and one that we really uh, speaks to us and it's how we do our own training and how we coach all of our runners is your book 8020. And for those runners who um, haven't had the opportunity to read this very important book, 
can you explain the principle of 80-20 training as it relates to marathons, particularly Boston training? Yeah, so um, the single most common mistake that runners make, and it's a, truly a mistake that almost everyone below the elite level makes, is doing too much moderate intensity running. Um, you know, the, what the elites do is they spend 80% of their training time at low intensity. And what science shows is that even if you're not elite, you should do exactly the same thing. So even if, you know, you have average genes, average talent, and you run a lot less than the elites do, you should still be getting out of that moderate intensity rut and doing most of your training at low intensity. Um, you know, when you do that, when you make that shift, you can comfortably handle uh, more volume. Uh, so there's sort of a secondary benefit in that. Even if you don't, you know, take advantage of 80-20 to increase your running, you'll get more out of the same amount of running you do. But if you are in marathon training, you might want to take advantage of just feeling fresher all the time uh, to, to add a little bit of um, mileage to your, to your week or you know, at least your peak weeks of training. Uh, when you get to the 20 side of the equation, so 80% is the optimal amount of low intensity, 20% is the optimal, optimal amount of moderate and high intensity combined. So there's sort of two buckets thrown together. And when you're in the training for a marathon versus you know, the mile or, or even 5K, you want more of that 20% to be at moderate intensity rather than high, at least in the, you know, sort of the, the peak phase or the specificity phase of training because a marathon is done at moderate intensity. So you need to spend, so even though you're, you're trying to overall get out of that rut where you're doing too much at moderate intensity, um, when, you, when, you are, when you are intending to get out of the, you know, the 80, 80% and, and focus on that 20%, uh, a big chunk of that should be you know, uh, done around marathon pace or you know, threshold pace, half marathon pace in that range. Right. So that 20%, that speed work, that sharpening you're saying is more focused on the marathon, the, the, the skills and the, the development we need for marathon training. Yes. Though I should say, you know, um, part, part of the consequence of, of being in that moderate intensity rut is, yeah, you're not spending enough time at low intensity. But most of the people who are in that, in that rut also spend very little time at high intensity. And high intensity is your biggest bang for the buck. Um, and so, you know, they say speed kills, right? Like you can't handle a lot of it, but actually a lot of runners don't do enough. And even if you're in marathon training, you want to do some lung busting, you know, interval sessions and, you know, hill repetitions where you're really testing your highest gears. Again, not a lot of it, but you also don't want to neglect it. Right. And how, now, how do you define these intensities? Because I think a lot of people think they're running low intensity, but they're probably running moderate intensity. Uh, we have a lot of runners who think they're running low intensity and we look yeah. at their paces. So how do you define that for runners? Do you look at paces? Do you look at heart rate? What do you, how do you define that? Yeah. So the, the actual dividing, the, the physiological dividing line between low and moderate intensity that, that matters is something known as the ventilatory threshold. And that's, that is just the exercise intensity at which there's kind of a spike in your breathing rate. Um, it's not where you're hyperventilating. That's another threshold that's at a much higher in intensity. Um, so it's actually, um, it's sort of um, a cardiorespiratory event with a neuromotor basis. The reason that spike occurs is that when you start to increase your pace, there, get, there comes to a, a point where your brain has to activate more of your fast twitch muscle fibers. Uh, in order to you know, sort of meet the demand for increasing pace. And that's like flipping a switch. So when you cross that threshold, the, um, the effort, the, the, um, yeah, the exercise effort becomes a lot more stressful to your nervous system. You don't even notice it. You will, like that, this, this threshold occurs in the, for the average runner at about 78% of maximum heart rate, um, which is very comfortable for most people. So you don't even know what's happening, but it's a crucial threshold because if you're just above it, you need a lot more recovery than if you're than if you're just below it. And most runners, when they just you know go for an average six miler or one hour run or whatever, just without even realizing it, choose a pace that is just above that threshold. So you know even though the threshold is defined defined by something that happens with um, your breathing, uh, you can correlate it with um, heart rate or pace 
or even, you know, they've got these running power meters or even perceived effort, though that's less reliable for a lot of runners, which is precisely why they're in the rut in the first place. Um, what about talk? What about conversational or talking? Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's one way. Usually, you know, if 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 you can pass the talk test, uh, the one I I use um, actually it was used in a particular study, but I I share it in the book is, uh, and this works for Americans only. Reciting the Pledge of Allegiance while you're running, <laughs> if, if if you can do that comfortably, um, you're you're you know, you're below that threshold. We we really love this principle, and and it's important the the way you laid it out and define the paces because. It's also important to know that not your moderate pace and your um, lower intensity pace may be different depending on how fatigued you are, the weather. So it's not necessarily a pace that will be consistent with every run. Right. Yeah. It's also. A yes. You gain fitness. Um, so, yeah, you, you sort of you know, it, you're simply not going to successfully train by the 80-20 principle unless you monitor your intensity, you know, pretty much in every run. Because uh, if you're if you're not measuring it or paying attention in some systematic way, you're going to slide right back into that rut. So yeah, it's, it's sort of an everyday commitment you have to make. So so um, you know, we polled some of our runner friends and runners in the community here in Montgomery County Road Runners Club and our Run Farther and Faster runners asked them if they had any questions for you before we talked to you. And one brought up um, the question of whether or not you think that high mileage, um, even if it's that 80% low intensity variety, if that's critical to a strong marathon performance, getting that high mileage, or does it vary by individual? And um, they, they pointed to Jeffrey Caroy's uh, performance where he trains on lower mileage than most elites, maybe, you know, 70, 80 miles a week. Um, so a few people wonder, do you think that high mileage is critical or does that, does that vary? I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, you can try and finesse it a bit, but yes, it's absolutely true that you, you want to be running a lot relative to your own limits. So yes, there's inter-individual variation, but you know, when people toss out an outlier like Jeffrey Karui, the dude's still running 70 or 80 miles a week, okay? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a lot. Which is about, which is about double what most recreational runners are doing. So it's not that individual. Um, so as a general principle, I, I strongly advise all marathoners who care about performance to run a lot and, and to actually increase the amount of running that, that they can handle and even sort of, sort of to challenge themselves, uh, to bootstrap their way toward, toward being able to, um, handle and benefit from, uh, higher running volume. Right. That makes sense. So, um, Moving kind of towards Boston, training for Boston, are there any general rules of thumb now that we're kind of done with our high mileage portion of training? Are there any general rules of thumb that you think runners should be following now in the last um, two and a half, three weeks during taper before we get to Boston? Yeah, I mean, you know, specific course preparation matters a lot for Boston. My, my first Boston Marathon in, in 2009 was an utter disaster. I describe it in Life as a Marathon. Um, and it was so in part, you know, as it is for so many first timers at Boston, because I wasn't prepared for, for all the downhill running. Um, it, uh, I, elsewhere in the, in the same book, I refer to downhill running as topography's meat tenderizer. Um, and, you know, I just felt like my, my quads had been bludgeoned with tire irons uh, for a couple hours by the time I got to uh, the uphill part of the race, which is, it's not really the hardest part of Boston for most people, at least if you're susceptible to, uh, you know, you know, muscle damage that, that you incur when, when running downhill. So I, I strongly advise anyone who's preparing for Boston to do some downhill running, some extended downhill running. Um, you know, there are even people like, uh, I remember Rod DeHaven, an elite a professional runner from back in the day, he would, he would prop up the back end of the treadmill in his basement and run like 18 miles downhill, you know, in place on, on his treadmill at home. That's, that's probably, I could be sued if someone tries that <laughs> and has an accident. So I'm not, I'm not recommending it, but I'm, my point is prepare for the downhill. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, we completely agree. And um, is there anything with respect to 
tapering, whether Boston or generally with marathoners that you subscribe to that maybe isn't always a, a typical piece of advice? Yeah, I, uh, I, I would say it's much more common or it is more common for runners to over taper than under taper. Uh, I see this a lot. Runners think that they just, you know, you know, within week, a week or two weeks of um, a marathon, they need to just kick up their heels and rest as much as possible. That is absolutely hmm. wrong. Um, wh when you do that, your body basically on a deep sort of subconscious level gets the message that it's on vacation. So if you've ever had one of those races where you're fit and you know it, and then the race starts and you just feel kind of blah, yes. that's probably what happened where you, you rested too much, you over tapered and your body thought it was on vacation. And then when suddenly you're racing, it's like, Whoa, wait, wait a minute. Um, so yeah, you have to taper, you do have to reduce your training load, but uh, you know, again, this is a heavily researched area and, and, an optimal taper is, you know, sort of gradual where you step down in volume, but you keep a fair amount of intensity in there. And actually within the taper, you should deviate from the 80-20 the rule and maybe do more like a 70-30 thing where about 30% of a reduced training volume is at, at higher intensities. That, that's what sort of primes your uh, neuromuscular system uh, to race. So, you're getting some rest by reducing the volume, but you're also priming your body to race by keeping some intensity. Right. In so there. keeping the sharpness in your legs and keeping that snappiness there and not getting to the start line, feeling, feeling sluggish. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what the research shows is that actually what happens during a taper, the main thing is that um, you become more powerful. Uh, it, the, you know, the, the effects of a, a properly done taper mostly have to do with your sort of anaerobic capacity you're you know you just you get bouncier mm -hmm. yeah definitely and and one element of the of the taper that everyone struggles with is their their mental game because even if you are maintaining similar intensity when you decrease your mileage and you're in that taper time it's it's hard sometimes to maintain a consistent positive attitude as you head into the marathon and in your book, the mental aspects of running, how bad do you want it really addresses this and really helps. I think people recognize that you do have control over your thoughts and there are things you can do. And as people start to get nervous and doubt themselves as they head into taper, what advice do you have for runners to do right now to maximize their mental game during the taper? Yeah, the, the single most important thing you, you can do is exactly what you touched on, is to, to recognize the control you have. You know, when you start to, you know, get, uh, you know, feel anxious and to have, um, you know, self-doubt before a race, it's so easy to just sort of slip into that and kind of go with it. And what you can train yourself to do is, and maybe you can't stop that from initially happening, but what you can do um, is sort of catch yourself doing it pretty quickly, you know, so maybe you've, you've, you've experienced, you know, 10 or 15 seconds of anxiety, and then you're like, wait a minute, uh, let's take a step back. And, and so that, that's the first step, you know, the, the second step is, okay, what, do, what exactly do you do then? Um, you know, there's a, a variety of things. One is, you know, I, I like to just trust in my preparation. Um, so assuming that you've, you know, done things the right way, um, you know, you can pull yourself out of those moments by just, you know, looking back at all you did and, you know, and reminding yourself, you know, I am prepared. Um, and, you know, your goal should be sensible and it should be based on your preparation. And if it is, remind yourself of that. Like, I know I can do what, what I'm hoping to do. Right. Trust your training. <laughs> You've got to, we also tell our runners and have to remind ourselves not to look around at everybody else. And, you know, our fellow runners and see what they're doing and wonder, oh, they're only doing, you know, a two-week taper. They're doing their last run at this, you know, this is their last run. Why trust your training, stick to your training plan, trust your training. And then shifting that to race day, what about race day mental game? And you go through this quite a bit in your experiences during Boston. The, you know, it's 26.2 miles is a, is a long, a long way. And in all the marathons you ran in your, your experience in, in your book, um, you know, you, you start out some of them at one point and you, you know, something happens along the way, either mentally or physically, but on the mental game, 
Um, you know, how do you, how do you get through that 26.2 miles and the highs and the lows? Yeah, I just, you know, this is my favorite part of, of racing because I, I, I love that challenge. Um, and I, you know, I think that is a big part of the secret right there is just embracing it. Um, you know, there, there's a tendency of just a natural uh, a human tendency in a human tendency to go into a race sort of vaguely hoping that everything goes your way. Um, and that's dangerous. <laughs> um, what you need to do is, is go into a race just expecting a challenge and, and, you know, em embracing the fact that, you know, it, it, it might be hard. It might be harder than expected. You might have, you know, you know, sort of things could go wrong in either, you know, expected or, or unexpected ways. And to just have sort of a general readiness for it. Um, that's what the, the champions do is that they're very quick to just accept reality, whatever the reality is, because that's how you problem solve. It's, you, can't, you can't solve a problem whose existence you're denying or you know, that you're trying to hide from yourself in some way. So just, um, just keep, you know, keep your eyes squarely focused on, on, on the truth of what's happening and then just be as rational as you can in, in – you know, solving the problem, whatever it is. And, and, you know, there's a whole laundry list of, you know, you know, when you get into the specific problems, it, you know, you know, it's a Pandora's box in terms of how, how you solve them. Um, just to, again, another random example, example, sometimes when I just have a bad mile in, in a marathon, what I'll do um, in those moments is I, I call it taking a mile off where usually, you know, I'm very focused on a pace and, if, you know, if I don't like my split or if, or if that, harder, that mile felt harder than I thought it should, I'll just uh, ignore my watch for the next mile and just concentrate on my perceived effort and just, just try to take that edge off. Just the, Give yourself you know, just a break. Focus on, yeah, just, you know, reducing the strain by a difference-making amount. And almost always when I do that, the strain, you know, because you have control over that, you can back off, you know, just enough to get a little more comfortable. And then almost always what happens is that when I, when I catch my next split, I actually haven't slowed down. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's a million little tricks like that. And again, it totally depends on exactly what, what the problem is. But the general principle is um, just embrace the fact that it's going to be challenging, that any given race could be the most challenging race you've ever done. Um, and, you know, just be, be prepared to, to work. Through yeah. It. I love, I've heard you say one time on another podcast, I believe that what limits us a lot of times is our perception of how much suffering we can, we can withstand. So usually it's the mental part that's holding us back and not the physical part. So kind of accepting that it may get uncomfortable and there are going to be parts that are difficult and parts that are easier. And just like you said, looking at that moment in this moment, what do I need to do right now, right here to, you know, to keep, keep going on and admitting that there's admitting that the, whatever is happening is actually happening and then figuring out how you have to deal with it. I think that's, that's gr great advice, especially in Boston where there are lots of different phases of the race and different parts where um, different challenges may arise. So that's, that's great right. advice. So moving on to, to um, nutrition and race day nutrition, um, another question that we had from, from one of our local runners, uh, they had been working on uh, PRing, getting a PR in the marathon distance and really adhered to your new rules of marathon and half marathon nutrition. And during training, trained themselves to be able to take in 60 grams of carbs per hour. And he said that that was instrumental in him achieving a, a PR. So can you talk about that rule and why this amount of nutrition is critical and why, you know, it's more than a lot of runners I think are used to consuming and why that's critical to marathon success. Yeah. So again, th this is a, a heavily researched uh, area. Um, you know, there, it's a, human beings were not designed to consume nutrition while running. <laughs> so, you know, it's not easy, um, but it is beneficial. And there's, there's really only two things that, that help you um, with some fine print, uh, nutritionally, you know, during running one is water and two is carbohydrate. And when I say carbs, I really mean sugar. Um, uh, sugar does a couple of things. It's, it's what's known as an, an exogenous energy source. So, you know, you're burning a lot of sugar, the, the stuff that's actually stored in your body as, 
mainly as glycogen. Um, so that, that's, that's your for, sort of first supply of your own body's built-in fuel tanks. But you can preserve those by taking in uh, carbs from an outside source while you're running. Um, and there's also um, sort of a direct uh, line of communication between your tongue and your brain. So even tasting uh, carbs while you're running reduces perceived effort and enhances performance. So there's been studies showing that even if you just swish a sports drink around in your mouth and spit it out uh, periodically while running, you'll actually perform better. Um, so there are kind of two mechanisms. So, you know, sugar has a bad name and, you know, misguidedly so many runners think, oh, I don't want to take in something unhealthy while I'm racing. Well, the point of taking in sugar while you're racing is not your health. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting to the finish line faster. You can, you can reward yourself with broccoli afterwards if you like, but, you know, take it or leave it. Sugar, sugar is, uh, is going to help you. Um, and, and what the research shows is that really the more the better. Um, so the limiter is not, it's not like, uh, you know, you know, 10 grams an hour or 15 is plenty and there's no point in taking in more. The limiter is just how much we can tolerate. Uh, so the, the, you know, you, what you want to do is take in as much as you can tolerate uh, when, when running a marathon. Um, 60 grams is sort of a threshold, a magical threshold where you're probably going to get about, uh, you know, all the benefit you can get from, from carb intake during a marathon if you can get 60 grams per hour. And the key um, to being able to be able to take what your body perceives as the maximum amount somewhere around 60 ideally is to train and talk to us a little bit about yep. um, training your body to be able to take in generally around 60 grams and, and what methodologies you think work best. Yeah. I mean, you have to get in the habit of consuming carbs during longer runs, um, you know, getting to fine print again, there's actually some benefit in withholding carbs during some long runs, but uh, you, you definitely have to practice it. And, a big part of it is actually just determining how much you're taking in, right? You know, some people, they just, you know, they're taking in something, but they have no idea how much. So you want to do some, some measurement, you know, start off with your current habits maybe and see how much are you taking in. And then, you know, this is really best to do in more, not just easy long runs, but more race specific ones, like, you know, steady state runs or, if you do long runs with surges or long runs with a faster finish or you know, marathon pace runs, what, what have you, those runs are great opportunities to practice. Um, if, if, you know, if your current habit is, you know, 20 grams per hour, um, you know, play around with uh, strategies to, to take in more, whether it's using a combination of gels and a sports drink. Um, if you, if you find that, um, one thing you don't want to do is, is, I mean, everyone's got a limit and there is an uh, individuality in, uh, in those limits, but you don't want to give up too easily. If, if you, you know, try, you know, 45 grams per hour and you end up, uh, you know, nauseated, um, instead of saying, oh, that's above my limit, try different products, uh, try different uh, means of getting the carbs uh, into your body. Because, you know, it's interesting. Elite, mar I, I deal with uh, recreational marathoners all the time who are like, "Oh, I just can't tolerate carbs uh, when I'm racing." There is there isn't an elite marathoner on earth who will say that. It's like, wait, are they genetically different in some way that allows them to? N n absolutely not. A lot of them are sensitive too. They just refuse to quit because they know their livelihood is at stake. It's like they have to get 60 grams per hour if they're going to retain their job. Right. So they find a way and, and you, you can too, trust me. It just takes a little bit of experimentation and some trial and error. We, we like what you said though, because I think there's a lot of people out there that have uh, misconstrued some of your advice with regard to some runs not taking nutrition as that should be something you do for all runs. And then surprise on race day, you've taken your nutrition, but really it's important to practice and, and tweak it before race day. But then it's okay once in a while to do the fasted runs if you're a seasoned runner um, and we, we assume you have some opinions about that as well, given how people can sometimes misconstrue nutritional information and make it their own. Yeah. I mean, as, as someone who has read diet cults, you know, that, um, people tend to think in black and white, uh, where nutrition is concerned. Like it, it's either all this or all that. And, and the fact of the matter is, uh, it's most beneficial to do 
some runs with carbs and some without. Um, and so it is not all one, one or the other. And, and you definitely want to race with carbs. Uh, so, you know, that absolutely uh, demands that you, you get some practice doing so uh, in, in your Absolutely. Training. So, yeah. And, and let me veer off for a second. I know we're talking about nutrition with respect to the marathon, but for those of you listening who have not read Diet Colts, it's a must read because there's so much information out there, Matt, from people who claim to know a lot about diets that don't, or people who claim to be uh, registered dietitians who aren't, or put themselves out there to be experts. And it's, it's become worse because of social media, I think. There's just more access and more opportunity to tout yourself as a nutritional expert. And your book just does such a wonderful job of breaking it down. And, and, and I won't give away the end, but let's just say the agnostic diet is, 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 is spot on. It's spot on. So, yeah, I mean that's that what I what I what I call agnostic healthy eating is how most elite endurance athletes uh, eat. I, there's another book I wrote called The Endurance Diet, where I, I traveled all around the world, you know, eating with elite cyclists and runners and triathletes and what have you, and looking for common patterns. And that's what they do. Agnostic healthy eating, like almost none of them is on a diet that has a name. Right. <laughs> they just they just eat normal with high standards. And like, and the good news is a, that's actually the best way to eat if you're an endurance athlete and B it's actually quite enjoyable and easy yeah. <laughs> to eat that way. Absolutely. So do, do it. Um, so while we're on the topic of diets and because this is a Boston marathon focused podcast, do you have any tips um, during the taper for um, sort of how to go about your eating? Uh, obviously adhering to the agnostic uh, healthy way of eating, but at the same time, are there anything, is there anything that you've seen people do wrong over and over during taper or anything you see people do right that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah. You know, one thing I, I, I like to do, um, and you have to be careful with it if you're someone who's, um, you know, not prone to half measures in, in diet, but, um, I, I will actually, uh, sort of, get a little more strict with myself. I'll raise the bar a little bit um, in both terms of the quantity and quality of what I eat. So um, I will often, and again, I'm, I really want to focus on just, this is what I do uh, as an example, um, but I will, I, I'm a big beer lover. So that's, that's my weakness. If I'm, you know, if I'm carrying around a couple extra pounds at any given time in training, it's mostly because of beer. <laughs> yeah. Beer's so, great. <laughs> Beer is actually a recovery drink for women. (laughs) Right. So so anyway, for the, you know, during my taper, I'll usually eliminate beer. Like it's not something I could do for the rest of my life, but for two weeks, uh, you know, when I've, when I'm excited about a race, it's it's no problem. And, and I'll also uh, do a little bit of portion control uh, because I am training less and, um, rather than, you know, gain a couple pounds of unwanted weight during uh, my taper, I'd, I'd rather actually lose, you know, whatever the, the pound or pound and a half that, you know, separates me from my optimal racing weight at that time. So it's just a short-term thing and you have to make it individual to, you know, you know, what your weaknesses are and what you can tolerate. Um, but I think that, that, that's just a good thing to do is I, I put up with a slight, I don't go hungry. I just put up with a slightly lower level of satiety. Um, and I just get a little bit stricter with some of, you know, my favorite treats. That sounds very reasonable. Um, and what we're curious, what do you eat the night before a marathon? Um, you know, usually, you know, I'm on the road and I don't, um, I don't have like any kind of ritual diet. I think like Paula Radcliffe was like white rice and chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Like before, before, well, I mean, you know, she wasn't doing it for the best meal right. of her life. <laughs> she wasn't being executed the next morning. She was running around. <laughs> so, so, I mean, but there are some people who do that. Like they, they just, you know, it's, this is what works for me. This is what I'm going to eat no matter where I am. Um, you know, there are Kenya runners who travel with Ugali, uh, you know, their cornmeal staple food that they eat at home, you know, so they can have that before the race. I usually, you know, I'm usually eating out. I'm eating at whatever restaurant I can book. I, I don't, I don't sweat it too much. You know, I just, I, I definitely, I do carbo load. So I'll make sure that I eat, you know, uh, potatoes or um, pasta or, or rice or something. 
Um, you know, I, I'll choose the restaurant carefully. So, you know, someplace I don't think I'm going to get food poisoning. But, um, you know, I, I really just uh, I don't I don't overthink the whole thing. Okay. Um, and we have two more questions for you because we know you have to go soon. So the first one is, what advice do you have for race strategy for Boston? Um, other than what we talked about with respect to nutrition, of course, and um, we talked a little bit about downhill running, but is there anything that you specifically tell your runners or yourself before racing this race? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the best reminder I could give is to stick with your strategy. Like, if you come up with a stupid strategy, well, <laughs> that's on you. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you've got all the time in the world to think it through, you know what I mean, to, to know what you're capable of, to understand that the course, you know, is up and down, and to have a plan that, you know, that actually makes sense. Um, and then what, you know, what kills so many runners is that, you know, that, that, that the first three miles of the race is just a free fall uh, from Hopkinton to Ashland. It's so fast. You can get caught up, you know, the excitement of it, you know, you know the, the energy. Um, and then, you know, everyone around you is stampeding. Um, and, and so it's so easy to get caught up and you, you just don't want to do that. It, it will, you will pay a price. Um, but, you know, I'm to, not to contradict myself, but also you do want to be flexible because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see, you know, I ran Boston in both 2016 and 2017 and both years it was over 70 degrees at the start. And I saw, you know, so many people who were fixated on, I've got to run 310. And, and 310 was the pace made the, would have been realistic on a 52 degree day, but not on a 72 degree day. And, and, but they insisted on starting at that pace and, and blew up. So you do have to adjust or, or take last year, for example. Yeah. Thank goodness that wasn't there last year. <laughs> we were. I mean, you know, yeah. right. So running it in a hurricane, you, again, you have to uh, adjust. So have a good plan, stick to your plan in as much as conditions permit it, but also, uh, you know, pay attention to and adapt to. Right. Conditions. I love what you say in, in life as a marathon, you, you say at one point, um, marathons are run on the road, not on the calculator. So that, right. that, that resonated with me because, you know, a lot of runners look at what they should be able to run and they get just so fixated on that, that they don't recognize that conditions can change and how they feel can change. And like you said, you've got to have a plan, but be willing to, to adapt it. That's absolutely right. And along those lines and in, in adapting and and in training. Um, and we know that you've had your own share of injuries and um, have had to fight through those, but what, what kind of advice do you have for runners who, um, to avoid injury? Um, you know, most of us now have gotten through Boston training and we've gotten through the highest mileage, but what about, you know, what about in general, just uh, injury prevention, not only leading up to the marathon, but in general, when you're running higher mileage and aiming to try to hit that, hit, you know, get that magical race and, and get everything right. Yeah, I guess, you know, the, uh, of, of the many tips I could offer, uh, the one I will highlight is um, don't let small problems become big problems. That, that's the lesson I had to learn as an injury-prone runner. Um, and um, you know, it's almost inevitable, unless you're one of these, like, super durable Dean Karnazes types, that, you, you know, if you're, if you're training close to your limits, you're going to – something's going to break down, or at least start to. But, and it's so tempting to just sort of – pretend it's not happening, rub a little dirt on it and keep going. But that usually, you know, that usually turns what could have been, you know, a, a one or two day setback into, you know, two or three weeks setback. So don't do that. You know, when you get what I refer to as red flag pain, cross train, just stop the run and switch to cross training. It works. Believe me, I, I've had to rely so much on, on, on cross training over the years. And, and, Runners who just, you know, haven't done that before, they just refuse to believe that it can possibly be almost as good as running, but it really is. So just because you have, you know, you know, some sort of sore spot that makes it inadvisable to run today doesn't mean you can't train today. You know, it's not a choice between running and sitting on the couch. There has to be something in between. And, and just having that fallback option, some sort of cross-training, um, will uh, it, it'll reduce the temptation to – you know, to be stubborn and stupid. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And we really appreciate all the advice that you have given us through your books and sharing your story in life as a marathon. And we particularly love that 
when you were 11 years old, you ran the last mile, I think of the, of the Boston marathon with your father. And that really had a, had an impact on, on your, your desire to run the marathon, a marathon and Boston marathon in the future. And that's really, um, you know, kind of came full circle eventually where, um, you know, you had a, a few times when, when it didn't go as, as planned, but that you, um, got to run it a few years ago with your, you know, with your high school friend and really have a meaningful experience. And, um, we appreciate your candor, not only in your book, but also just in your experiences and your spending time sharing your experiences and your knowledge with us and with our runners and everyone who's getting ready either to run Boston or whatever anyone's training for coming up this, this spring and into the future. So thank you so much. And again, the book is life is a marathon and it's now available. And how can we find you and more about um, the book, Matt? Yeah. Best place to start is my personal website, which is mattfitzgerald.org. Excellent. Awesome. And information about life as a marathon, as well as your multitudes of other wonderful books that we use as runners Bibles. And um, we encourage everybody to make sure they check that out. Thank you so much, Matt. We really appreciate your time. You were awesome. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye now. Wow. Matt is just a wealth of information. He's spot on. He's amazing. This is why we've adhered to a lot of his principles and read his books over the years. So it was really great to have the guru of all things endurance related on, on our podcast and get him, get him to answer those questions and talk to him about his experiences. And uh, again, his book, his new book, Life is a Marathon, really great. Really great book. All of his books. I mean, I know, I know I've read, I haven't read all of them, but I've read a large majority of them because I really like his writing style. There, he really breaks things down and tries to make things as informative and uncomplicated as possible with often very complicated topics. Yeah. Or could be complicated. Yeah. Great. So happy to have him on. So let's see what the next week brings us as yeah. we get closer to Boston. And um, we'll keep moving forward one step at a time. All right. Have a great week. You too.